and welcome to episode 57 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. Our guest on this edition needs little in the way of introduction to any whiskey fan. Richard Patterson has been working in the whiskey industry for the past 57 years, with more than half a century of his career spent with White and Mackay distillers. We were delighted to welcome Richard to the Society's spiritual home at the vaults in Leith recently, where one of the whiskey industry's biggest entertainers put on a special show for a room full of lucky members, taking us on a tour that included his stories and memories about Tamnavulan, Fettercairn, Jura, and of course, Dalmore. Whatever's in your glass, settle back for a 90-minute epic in the company of the one and the only Richard Patterson. Uh, well, good evening, uh, fellow whiskey lovers, fellow alcoholics. How are we? Are we okay? Okay. Well, what I want to do this evening is to really show you a number of products. Uh, Pauline, my partner at the back there, you can hardly see her. She's had a hard time uh, falling all over the place and broken her wrist. So she's going to press a few buttons and hopefully everything will be all right. But... Uh, I'm sure the whiskey will be all right, but we must go through each individual sample because as you know, being part of the malt society, you must feel the soul of the whiskey. And that's what I want to do tonight. But tonight, when we think about this 2023, the whiskey industry is actually booming. 6.2 billion pounds have come into the Exchequer because of Scotch whisky. Not just because of that, but also smoked salmon as well. And that's one of our biggest exports. And that's what I do when I go around the world. I go to small places, but everybody has heard of Scotch whisky. And that is really a credit to places like this. But I come back to one of the main things that people forget is people like Sonia over there. Sonia worked for the Scotch Whiskey Heritage Centre and the people behind the bar. It's these educated people that purvey the real passion and enthusiasm. And that's why we've got so many of you lovely, lovely people here tonight. But what I would really do want to do is to try and entertain you, try and show you a little point of difference about some of these uh, things that go on. My biggest problem is that when we leave here and we see the people out there, the jungle, they haven't a blinking clue. And, you know, it's crazy to think even in Scotland, 90% of the people do not know the difference between a single malt and a blended whiskey, which is crazy. So you can imagine what it's like around the world. And that's why when you get you lovely people who are ambassadors for our industry going and talking about the society bottlings and the ones you've tasted, that enthusiasm really helps to bring the export figures even, even higher. So those people that perhaps uh, don't know me, let me introduce you to my great, 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 great grandfather. I hope you've heard of him because this is Sir William Patterson. He established the Bank of England on Thursday, the 27th of July, 1694. 1694, and what did he like? He just loved the smell of money. 
He loved the smell of money, and people, unfortunately, around the world don't know him. He started banking all around the world. That's why you've got Patterson Street, Patterson Lane over in Singapore. But he's the man that helped to raise the money for the Darien scheme, for the eventually led, of course, to the Panama Canal. His son and uh, wife died out there, and he eventually got compensation. But he started the Bank of England, 1694, Bank of Scotland, of course, 1695, HSBC, a third of March, 1865, and all that, but he's the man that restarted it. So, as I say, he loved the smell of uh, money, okay, Pauline? And uh, this is my grandfather, my grumpy grandfather there, and this is my dear old dad. This is, uh, he is the man that said to my brother and I, all those years ago, when I was eight years old, he said, come on boys, I'm going to take you up to Glasgow, because we lived in Helensborough. Uh, what for, Dad? Because I'm going to show you what Scotch whiskey is all about. I'm going to introduce you to my world. And that's why we went to Stockwell Lane. Stockwell Lane in Glasgow. And uh, you may recognize it. Unfortunately, it was pulled down to make way for the Centenary Centre. But these buildings here you might recognize because that's Slater's Men and Women's Wear now. Very famous building. So here's my brother and I going up the street and he takes a big bunch of keys, he unlocks the doors, slides them open, and I walk into his world for the first time. Everything goes dark, dingy, the noise of the traffic disappears as we go deeper into the warehouse. We could see the silhouettes of the cask in the background, but it was of no interest to my brother and I. So we started fooling around, and that annoyed my father intensely. So he took a copita glass, uh, this is uh, the one that uh, was shown all those years ago. No, it wasn't, because it was actually this one. And that's why when I came here tonight and saw this glass for the very first time, it reminded me of that date, because this is a slight version, slightly bigger than the one my grandfather started, but it was the one that eventually subsided to this one here, which is the one that's used today. So anyway, he passed me the glass and he said, Okay, Richard, so you think it's so funny. Why don't you tell me something about the whiskey? So I picked up the glass in a stupid way, and I said, Listen, Dad, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, What? And he whacked me in the back of the head. And I said, What did you do that for? He said, You're being stupid. I want you to hold the glass. I want you to swirl around, bring it up, and say, Hello. Is it as heavy as your grumpy grandfather? Is it perhaps as light as your mother? Is it perhaps as sweet as your chocolate bar? Or perhaps is it as dry as the dust on the floor? So from that early beginnings, as soon as I smelt it, something ignited inside of me. And I said, I want to be part of this world, part of the Scotch whiskey industry. So here I am, 57 years later, still passionate about Scotch whiskey because I look around here and I see all your eyes opening up to every time you get a new whiskey. And that's what really does inspire me and that's what whiskey is all about. Okay, Pauline? So, we then say whiskey, the water of light, Ushkabeya. Then we think about 1800s, we think about 1823. Never forget that date. 18th of July, 1823 is when the Excise Act came into force. People had to really look at distillation in a proper way. So we had to mature whiskey. Then, of course, 
the Excise Act, and then various pot stills and patent stills coming in, and then, of course, okay, Pauline, and then this man here, Andrew Usher Jr., who pioneers the art of whiskey blending. Born, of course, in 1826 and died of bowel cancer on the 1st of November, 1868. So, of course, he's the man that established the art of whiskey blending, taking his malt whiskies, his green whiskies, putting them together and putting them out into the world. And he was walking along Princess Street in, you know, about 1870, 1860, should I say, and he said, what am I going to do with all this money? He said, well, you like music, don't you? Why don't you actually donate it to the city council? So he donated £100,000, which equivalent of £18.5 million today. And that's why, March 1811, we've got, of course, Usher's Hall named after him. Many people in Edinburgh pass Usher's beautiful hall and haven't a clue that it came from this great man. He's the man that established blended whiskey, which still accounts for 90% of the whiskey market. But as you know, single malts are rising, and that's where the money is. So we then, of course, go and say, but whiskey's not everybody's category. Yes, whiskey was popular, but uh, cognac was the main drink. So what led to the final breakthrough of the Scotch whiskey industry? As some of you have already heard, it was when a group of bottles were over in America collecting vine samples. They brought them into England, into France, different parts of the world to see what type of wines they could produce. Little did they know that embedded in the vine shoots was this little sod here. The Phylloxera Vasterix uh, aphid, discovered in Hammersmith in 1863, got up and spread right across Europe, devastating every single vineyard. And of course, by 1800s, the whole of France was decimated. And of course, by 1897, it had hit the cognac area. So it was no longer possible to send the same volumes of cognac into brandy, so people had to look for an alternative drink. And that's when James White, Charles Mackay, and all the whiskey entrepreneurs established their liquid gold Scotch whiskey. So it's thanks to this phylloxera, and people forget this, that actually it got underway. Make no mistake, it spread right across different parts of Europe. It followed, and then it, they had to reapply. But from that, we get Appalachian Controli, Denominata Controllata, making sure that if you want to produce a great wine, there has to have laws. The vinification, the vinification has to be certain grape varieties, etc. So more controls came on it. And therefore, from that, whiskey started to get underway. We drink, of course, more uh, whiskey in uh, one year than cognac can produce, or one week, should I say, that cognac can produce in a whole year. That is an actual fact. Okay. So then, of course, we... Um, yep. Yeah. You can't see me, sorry. This is when we get these entrepreneurs like James White, Charles Mackay, who established our company. They were meant to have got together in 1844. Uh, that wasn't strictly true because James White wasn't born until the 6th of March, 1844. But they did get together in 1882, James White, Charles Mackay, over in Glasgow, put their whiskies together and formulated the White Mackay blend. They were the simple entrepreneurs at the time. You talk about competition being bad, uh, even rife to just now, but it's still competitive way back then. We took the bottles, put our name W&M on it, put Glasgow on it, which is something 
really meant a lot to a lot of people. So they had to have innovative ways. Malt whiskey, yes, it was there, but it was very much in its infancy. People were very hesitant. It's very hot, it's very fiery. Will I put more water in it? Will I do this, will I do that? So it was blended whiskies that actually led the way. Okay, so, yep. So today, we have all the main regions, as you all know, approximately 140 distilleries are in production, 140. But there are around about 20. Nobody really knows because there's so many planning permissions going on at the present moment. But there's about 20 to 30 small boutique distilleries getting underway. But as you know, we draw the imaginary line between Greeny Cup to Dundee. The whiskies below that line are known as Lola Malts. Light and body, charm, elegance, femininity. Yes, I'm sorry, that is what we use because we think of them as soft, refined in that way. Yeah, you get one or two differences, but generally speaking, like Auchentoshin and all that, very light in body, but great whiskies. but now they're branching out, putting into different sets of cars. But if you're looking for muscle backbone structure, you have to come up to the Highland region. This Highland region, which I get a bit annoying, oh, it engulfs the Speyside Valley. Yeah, okay, Speyside should be separate. Well, it's up to yourselves. I think it's part of the Highland region. The River Spey, the fastest flowing river in Great Britain, runs for 162 miles, sorry, 107 miles, but there are about 50 odd distilleries on its banks, elegant and refined. This is where we see true finesse, almost like the Grand Champagne, the Poyac area of Bordeaux. But again, the subtle differences. But really, if you want to blend these whiskies from the Speyside with the heavier Highlands, they seduce them and give them the body that we're actually looking for. Highlands, of course, goes right up here. Dalmore's up there, of course. Pulteney and then up to uh, Orkney and, of course, Shetland there. A huge, huge area, but lots of diversification taking place. Then down to Campbellton, 37 distilleries, 38 some people say 39, but generally speaking, there were all these many distilleries functioning down there. Okay, over the years, they've closed down. We've now got Springbank, Glengyle, and Glen Scotia. Glen Scotia, to me, was one of my first distilleries way back in 1966. The fishing industry was very much part of that and still is today in that community. But these distilleries are quite complex, but you need to look after them. You need to make sure you've got the right cast. That's why your Springbank, very elegant. It's got that, yes, refined saltiness that people talk about. But then Glen Scotia, when I was there, the wood was pretty rough and ragged, but now they've been really looked after. We've got some babies really emerging. Over to Isla, oh, so controversial at times. Oh, I like Isla, I hate Isla. When did you drink it? I drank it in a warm place. No, get the wind and rain in your face. You know, Lagavulin, Lafroy, Garbeg, Kaila, Beaumore, but Bunnahabbin and Brewerclady, again, of course, that was part of our distillery, Brewerclady for many years. They all have their own individual characteristics. But I always think, take them at the right time. Lafroy, a classic example where you take it 32 or 34 years old, you've got the balance of the phenolics coming together with some of the ingredients coming from the cast. So, so important, but taken in the right place. Pure magic, I can tell you that right now. So there they have it. And all of you lovely people have been there at these individual places. And every distillery is individual, just like yourselves. 
and they're worth looking for and visiting when you've got the time. Okay, so these are all the distilleries, part of our portfolio. We've got Grangemouth, where we bottle. We've got Ferricairn, established 1823. Town of Lewin, 1966. Dalmore, 1839. Inbergordon, uh, 1961. Jura, 1810. And, of course, uh, down to the White Mackay offices. So we've got a, a number of areas over, over the years that we've developed. But Dalmore certainly has uh, changed dramatically over the years, and I'll talk about that. But so over the rest... And I'll be honest, I love them all. They've all got their particular charisma and refinement. Okay. So there we have. There's Jura. You can just see that. If you've, how many of you have been to Jura? Hands up. Oh, well done, guys. Yes, that's fantastic. Uh, how many of you have been to Isla? Oh, nearly all of you. Just put your hands down there. I've not been to Jura. Yeah, look. So I, I, I'm saying that. I go over to America. Uh, have any of you been to Isla? Oh, Richard, of course, we've all been to Isla, you know, Isla. I said, uh, no, how many of you been to Jura? I said, well, why didn't you go to Jura? Oh, Richard, there wasn't time, wasn't time. I said, it only takes the ferry four and a half minutes to cross over. <laughs> you, you lazy American bastards, you know. So uh, anyway, um, that, that's Jura, but the, the palm trees give you an indication. That maritime climate, it can be so beautiful. As soon as you get over there, no telephones, no nothing, just red deer all over the place. And then, of course, in Bergorden, yeah, very industrial. That's where we produce our green whiskey, and that's where we do a lot of the uh, seasoning of the cars. I go up there every November. Same to the Dalmore, and we know thousands of casts all week. It's the best time ever. You see the casts developing in their own particular way. That's when we make the decision, what we're going to do with this, what we're going to do with that. Uh, of course, Tandavulan and, of course, uh, Ferrocairn, also very, very beautiful in their own way. Ferrocairn means a lot to me because that's where I spent a lot of the time writing my book and getting all the information, which is never easy because you don't want to copy everybody, whatever anything else says. So all the research went uh, in that particular place. All right, Pauline. So um, the woods, American white oak, Quercus alba, you know, and uh, European oak, so important. And when we're talking about that, make no mistake, 80% of the characteristics of your malt whiskey, that's the way I look at it, will emanate from the right cask. It's so, so important. You know, I was talking to Jalen, Jalen, yeah, uh, Jalen, yeah, and I said, oh, what's your favorite color? You know, she said, well, I like the red. It really brings, brings my characters, my beautiful. As you can see, she's a very high-maintenance woman. Isn't that right, Michael? Yes. And uh, I said, well, she, I said what, she, what cast do you not like, uh, color? She said, oh, I'm not so keen in gray. It doesn't do anything for me. Well, that's exactly the same as in the whiskey. If you make the selection of the right cast, you will help to enhance its beauty. What you've got to remember is how long will that take? Will it take two years? Will it take two and a half? All this, oh, how's it, how long has it been in Cabernet Sauvignon? Oh, Richard's been in for three weeks. What, what a waste of time. He's got to really get in there, get into the pores of the wood, settle down and give, you know, the introduction to that whiskey at the right degree. So, so important. So, the Ozark Mountain Range of Missouri, yeah, these are the notes you can get, the honey, the spice, the cloves, 
Very careful when you do it, especially with Limousine Oak. There's the Ozark Mountain Range in Missouri, 40,000 square miles, where we get American white oak. And then, of course, European oak coming from different parts of Europe, but particularly in Spain, where we get bigger evaporation. The pores are bigger, but we get the sort of uh, warmth and appeal that we're looking for. Okay. Yep. So let's go on to Tamnavulan. All right, Pauline just hit, hit the next one, I think. Yep, there we are. Pauline there's uh, showing you up in Speyside Valley, just part of that lovely area. Uh, it used to be called, I think the next, just on the next slide again, just there it is. There we have it, because it's an old slide. This says Tamnavulan Glenlivet. Now, Glenlivet doesn't like that, but that's what it was originally, like Abelar Glenlivet. Uh, you know, Glenlivet was the only distillery of course, 1822, that really got underway, and it's considered, you know, the Speyside Mall. But other people wanted to sell their whiskey, so that's why, you know, they put the name Glenlivet. So when George IV came to Edinburgh, 19th of August, 1822, and all that, he actually asked for a Glenlivet. It didn't come from the distillery, but it came from the area. So it really meant something, and that's why. But, of course, uh, our friends at Perno said, enough's enough, you can only uh, get that Glenlivet of because there is only one Glenlivet. But that's just to give you an idea. So it gives you an idea of the distillery when you look at it. You can see the sort of soft hills at the back. There's a sort of peace and tranquility when you're going up the A9 and then you come off and go through all these lovely little villages and you arrive into the Speyside area. There is a sense of peace and tranquility. And therefore, they're very much reflected of the whiskies there. And of course, there is Tamnamulu. Tamnavulan means, of course, mill on the hill. The mill's long gone, but it still has that essence, but it still needs to be looked after and brought back to life that will reflect the whiskey. And that's what we've been doing over the last five or six years. And okay, this is, uh, this is Tamnavulan. The one that we're going to show you is uh, Tamnavulan. Uh, this is slightly different from the one we've got here because I want to show you one that, just put that one up again, Pauline, because yeah, just bang it again, and then just because it has the same notes. These are the notes that you can expect. Typical Speyside will have apple, pear, plummy notes, the vanilla. That's what you can expect. And therefore, being light in body and that finesse that we're always looking for, particularly with age. We must get the age in it. I don't like releasing whiskies that are young, three or four years. That's you know, they don't get underway until 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 years, 15 years, particularly 15. So we've done a big selection of the whiskies, and we've put them back into certain uh, casks, a lot of wine casks. But the one I've selected here tonight is, in fact, the Tamnavillain Sauvignon Blanc. And this Sauvignon Blanc um, comes from the Loire Valley. And when I bought the casks all those years ago, I was actually quite surprised because I remember coming home and I said, what, what do you think of this wine, Pauline? And she said, it's like Chardonnay. I said, exactly, it is like Chardonnay, but it is a Sauvignon Blanc, because that particular, in the Loire Valley that we get, we get that saltiness, that sort of uh, apple note coming through. So please look at this whiskey. You've got it in front of you. Um, I'll just take a little bit more because I'm just a wee bit greedy. Um, so please, I, I know, and I don't want to talk to the converted, but when you, when you take up this glass, because I have this all the time, try not and get involved by 
warming it, chambering it with your hands. A lot of people like to do that, but it's the way you want to do it. And the other thing, of course, is make sure you always hold it down at the bottom so that, in fact, you swirl it around, bring it up, and say hello. I mean, last week, you know, when I was away, I met so many people going like this. And I said, what are you doing? I'm uh, nosing the whiskey. I said, no, 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 no. You've got to say, come up and say hello. And you've really got to, but don't, don't inhale it. Don't go big inhale. It's got to be very soft. Come up and say hello. And then you go back and say, how are you? And then you come up and say, quite well, thank you very much. The softer you do it, you've got two nostrils, one is better than the other. But then when it comes to the taste, you must do it slowly. I must never forget the guy in South Africa. I gave him a whiskey once and I said, you like whiskey? Of course I like whiskey. I said, well, can I give you this one? He said, yeah, no problem. So I gave it to him. He took one look at it and he knocked it back like a cowboy. And I said, what did you get from that? He said, what do you mean? I said, what did it taste like? Taste? I, I never tasted anything. I went, what? So I slapped his face. And he said, well, he said what do you think you're doing? I said, I said, you've got to revere it. You've got to respect it. He said, you've got to keep the whiskey in your mouth much longer. Okay, all right, no problem. So he puts it in his mouth again, and he keeps it in his mouth for only three or four seconds. I said, what did you get this time? He said, hmm, hmm, yes, I did get something but not that much. I went, what? I slapped him again. He said, I'm going to punch you. I said, no, 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 don't punch me. I said, how old is the whiskey here? And at that time, it was 22 years old. So I said, this time what I want you to do is to keep it in the top of the tongue, underneath the tongue, back in the middle for 22 seconds. So that's what he did. He put it in his tongue, kept it there, kept it there, let it go down. And then he started smiling. He said, ah, now I know what you mean. And then the next minute, he was crying. I said, what are you crying for? He said, my father always told me to knock it back. But now with you telling me how to hold it long in the mouth, I can see all the flavors. So that's why I said, well, you've got to think of Jackson Pollock, the American artist. What did he do? He takes his paints, he splats it on the canvas. And people used to say, Jackson, your paintings are a mess. No, no, they're not. Look at the paintings. Step back and you'll see an inner world. But you must give it time. And that's why all the whiskeys you see tonight, and I'm sure you've done it already, give it time. So please, when I go like this, top of the tongue, top of the tongue, and then underneath the tongue, underneath, and then back at the top again. Wait for it and then let it go down. Will you do that with me? Okay, what we say, Olaf, is that okay with you? Now, this is a man, this is a man who's been 30 years, 32 years, all the way from Germany. Well done. How do you know my bloody name? Yeah. <laughs> You're just thinking that. No, but this is, this is a man that knows the whiskey. He's very passionate about his whiskey. So that's why you've got to work with him. So as you say in Scotland, we say in Scotland, not, not in Germany. We say in Scotland, you know, you know this so well, slangiva. Is that right? Okay, so we'll do one, two, three, and then we'll have a big slangiva, all right? One, two, three. Slangiva. Oh, listen, I come from Glasgow and turn. <laughs> slangiva. No, come on. All right, one more time. This time, one, two, three. Slangiva. <laughs> 
There we go. For it. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Hello. First stage is all important. Don't ask anymore. Just keep it there. But then you go back a second time. Second part. Here we go. And let it go down. Now you're looking at the whiskey. Every time you give it that kind of length of time, for the second time, you'll really see what it's all about. Now the aftertaste is coming through. The pear, the apple, little hints of pineapple, lemon zest. Keep it there, keep it there, keep it there. And then that little hint of gooseberry towards the end, reflector for the Sauvignon. Just very easy, easy drinking. This is one for the afternoon. Keep it in the afternoon. Yes, you can drink it at night, but I like it. But again, what you've got to be delicate. When a whiskey is that delicate, you can then utilize, yes, Palomino Fino, possibly, a Fino Sherry, a Sauvignon Blanc, a Chardonnay. Not so much, a, maybe even a Semillon as well, but these are light. Go for something heavier, PX or what have you tends to just dominate it. It's keeping it, caressing it, really looking after it. So just like that. Some of you might need a little water with it. Remember, it's very personal. It's how you like it. Don't let me tell you how to drink it. I just want to show you the way I like it. Look at it. But the main thing more than anything is to really always, always give it time. All right? Just keep it there. Let it drift away. You can come back to that, of course. Okay, Pauline, right, let's see, where are we now? Yeah, we're going over to Fedekairn. Anybody been over there at Fedekairn? Oh, wow, Ikazam, yeah. This is a lovely distillery. A lot of history over here. It's on the east coast of uh, Scotland, of course. A little bit different here. We've got lots of different distilleries faced up in that particular way that have that sort of extra luxury. Um, Glen Caddam, have you tried Glen Caddam, some of you? This is one to watch, yeah, a real baby. Um, you know, uh, just, just uh, I find these whiskies quite rugged in style, but they're so beautiful to work with because they've got muscle. They're not that light style, they've got the sort of structure, muscle, backbone. And this distillery itself is very, very beautiful. Okay, Pauline, I think we'll just see if we can get, what's the next one, I can't remember. Yeah, this is, uh, it's, oh, there's a history, I think, attached to it later on. Yeah, don't, don't, don't move it yet. Okay, so here we have the pot still. The pot still about that, as you've probably seen already. To get greater reflux, we do something different. We took, uh, take the water and let it come down here outside. Not inside, but outside. And it gives us that reflux. We get that muscle. We get that structure. The water, of course, is taken from the high up in the Cairn Mount. Uh, I love to show you this picture here. Uh, this is the sort of uh, 
embankment from the river that comes into the distillery. And only a few weeks ago, for the very first time ever, it actually burst its banks. So much rain in Scotland is happening. Well, that particular day, it overflowed and it went down the main street of Fedicare. Unbelievable, down Distillery Road. And of course, uh, that is something that we're worried about because we're changing the environment. I mean, even when you, you, know, you think about today, 10, 11 degrees when we came up from our house in Trun, and we thought, gee, it's 11 degrees, you know, and it's still, it's February, and it's, you know, this is getting mild. So the temperatures are changing, and we've got to be very careful. But then I remember January, eight, nine years ago, up at Dalmore, we ran out of water. What, in January? You can't be serious. So the point I'm making is the temperatures are varying, so we've got to be aware of all these changes going on. I love these warehouses. This is what I call the traditional three-high. Three high, lots of circulation of air, and you're allowing the whiskies to mature nearest the ground, so important, and it's very traditional. Whereas I know we've got big production, the accountants are saying, no, they've got to be 12 high, we've got to put them in pallets and all that. But if you're looking for credentials of quality, get them three high, get them the old traditional uh, stone warehouses. Okay, Pauline? So, yeah, and this is, of course, the lovely uh, uh, Queen Victoria, she's got her arm round the greatest love of her life, Prince Albert, she married in 1840. And of course, what is that gonna do with Fedekian? Well, she arrived on the 21st of September, 1861. And that's why in 1864, we brought this, uh, built this beautiful uh, archway to celebrate her visit. She slipped into the uh, Ramsey Arms before going on the way up to Balmoral. Sadly, on the 14th of December, 1861, her beloved Prince Albert uh, passed away. But we still remember, uh, I remember we had a, a sort of look-alike couple uh, doing this sort of uh, visit to the distillery, and they were brilliant. Unfortunately, Prince Albert uh, went a wee bit too far. He started uh, at Fedekian, started drinking, started drinking, and Queen Victoria was not that far behind. So the provost eventually went up to her and said, listen, uh, we'll have to make more, speed things up, and we'll have to get further up the hill because there's other people waiting for it. And she turned around to the provost and said, do you mind? I'm speaking to my people. And I thought, I, thought, I said, well, yeah, but we're paying you, so get a move on. But, uh, uh, he, he, the, the guy that, I mean, reacted and acted Prince Albert, he, he was brilliant, but as I said, he did like the old baby. And then, of course, uh, we've got, uh, you know, Fask Estate further up the hill. Some of you might remember uh, Fedekair and Fask. That was the first time that we'd used a sort of pitiness, 15% coming in to give that extra body, that extra, uh, you know, muscle. And it, Peat is so good. Sometimes uh, the phenolics that you introduce from uh, heavily peaty barley just gives it a little bit of lift. But sometimes you don't need to mention it and people don't realize that, but it does, does help to give it that extra structure. Taken from Fask Estate, which of course was owned by William Ewart Gladstone, three times, sorry, not three times, four times Prime Minister of Great Britain. Bit of a grumpy sod, but anyway, we won't go into that. But anyway, he, he's got a vast collection, and he also had a fantastic wine collection. Chateau Lafitte, Latour, Margot, all stored there and discovered, you know, all those years ago. Okay, right, Pauline, where are we? We're
Sorry? Oh, yeah, right. Thank you. Yeah, well done. You're keeping me in up to date here. Okay, right. So we're going to go on to the Philip before we have our, our quick first break. We're just going on to the uh, 12 years old. And I want to emphasize this is Ferricairn, 12 years old. And this has been matured American white oak. Um, but to give that sort of extra muscle, extra structure, what we've done is we've gone to Jerethela Fontera, we've seen our friends at Gonzalez Baez, and we've made it into Pedro Jimenez grapes. So we've taken that, uh, they've got 27 hectares of this wonderful grape. They take it off of the vines in uh, normally in August, it used to be September, and they put them onto the asparto mats. It used to be asparto mats, but now it's these lovely uh, polythene uh, tunnels. They leave it for about two to three weeks, constantly every night turning it over, and it bakes the, the grapes. 40% of the moisture evaporates, and they get these raisins that they crush, and then, of course, they get this very sweet wine. A sweet wine that goes into the cask, normally coming in at 400 grams of sugar per liter. So what you do is that we buy these uh, lovely sherry butts, normally 600 liters, and we leave five liters. No, we don't. We leave actually more than that because five liters at 400 grams is not enough. You think of that heaviness, that weightiness. Look, uh, this, this is the... Uh, this is what we call the Methuselah, but it's even heavier than that one. And that's 127 grams of sugar. So in order to get it out of the pores of the wood, we need to really soak it, saturate it, and then we empty it. And when we say we empty it, you must, you must make sure that everything is taken out of that cask. But what you must do then is fill it immediately and then leave it for two, maybe three, maybe four years. Then monitoring and making sure that you get that sort of balance. What you mustn't do again is overdo it. It's like a painting. If you have a, you know, almost like a Turner painting up there and you put too much black in it, it will dominate the, the, the painting. So you mustn't let the sherry dominate the whiskey. So what you'll see from this particular one, I keep putting the glasses down, here we go. Um, this one has got muscle structure. You'll see it quite different, you know, quite different from the other one. I'm just going to just give me a, again, they're quite conservative. They're, um, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, just to, just to me. <laughs> okay. So, so re really look at this one. You'll see body, muscle structure. You'll see a lot of marzipan. You'll see sultanas. You'll see sort of sun-kissed raisins, but you'll see that sort of muscle of the whiskey. That's typical of Fedekirn to show you that sort of muscle and structure, all right? But really hold this one. This is, uh, that's why we went from a light style to a slightly more heavier style to uh, match with your, your, your main food dish here, okay? So uh, a big slanjiva again. One, two, three. Slanjiva. Yeah, that's it. And let it go down. Look at the weight, spicy, rich. 
then the sultanas, a little hint of pineapple. And for the very first time, this is between 12 and 15 years old, for the first time you're going to get a hint of licorice. Licorice comes into it, just a softness there, but very much the sultanas and keeping it there, keeping it there. Just go back to it a second time. Just got that lovely ebbs away. Just got that muscle structure, but that softness all to do with the PX. So I hope this first two whiskies maybe bring you into what we're starting to produce there. We've got uh, two more, we've got Jura and Dalmore, but I think you're gonna talk about the ambassadors uh, are gonna talk about their whiskies as well. Is that right? Yes, Tim, this is you. Okay, thank you very much, thank you. Follow that. They, um, I'll keep this short and sweet. Fruity and mellow. Number 13.82 from our sweet, fruity and mellow profile. Um, Richard, I hope you don't mind. I've, I've, I cancelled all the notes I had earlier on and keep telling myself, keep this short and sweet. Whiskey industry maestros and mavericks such as Richard have paved the way to experimentation, imagination, and sensory flavor to storytelling gold. And we've all witnessed that tonight in the space of 45 minutes. Um, our SMWS cast bottling tonight, 13.82, is a wee example of how our maverick tradition within the industry, and an ode to maestros like Richard, with cask and sensory flavor hunting ethos, is everything that we do. Now, normally our tastings at the society, whether it's in venue or at our partner bars, you will have the tasting notes for the society whiskey. Tonight, and I said I'd keep this short and sweet, fruity and mellow, um, I'll give you the information uh, briefly here. So I'd mentioned to Richard earlier on the audacity of me of providing him with an empty bottle of SMWS whiskey. It's the last remaining bottle at the Society of Cast number 13.82, um, of which the outturn was 235 bottles. It's, um, it's from an ex Casica wine barrique finish, is what it says in our spirits team notes, okay? Now, Caseca meaning harvest often refers to um, the, the wine's made from a, from a single vintage. This cask is from Jimenez Spinola, a family-run ninth generation. Uh, could all be on the Google and, and tell me off later on. Uh, Bodega in, um, in Jerez, we, we specialize in the PX grape. Now, they make a full spectrum of wines from this grape, from dry white to this dark, sticky PX sherry um, uh, the PX grape that we're all familiar with. The Caseca wine, I've put in the notes here, the Caseca wine in their range is perhaps closer to, to a muscat or a sauterne. Uh, lots of stone fruits, peaches, apricots. Uh, do I even need to read my notes? A lovely golden colour. Um, but most importantly tonight, it's an example of the society which Richard 
would know of more than anyone, having been a maestro and maverick himself by 1983 when the society began. And in our 40th anniversary this year, it's an absolute pleasure as a young man getting older who has followed one man in the industry when you're finally getting access to Google, internet. Who's, who's the main man? Who's the main human being in the industry? And I've got two colleagues that work at White Mackay who have told me don't mention their bloody name tonight. And they've worked there for a good few years now and they've said that if there's anybody who's accessible and there's anybody who just tells it how it is, it's the gentleman who's, who's presenting to us tonight. So on behalf of all of us, Richard, all age groups, everybody, whether we're new members tonight or members that have been here for a long time at the Society, it's people like you that make whiskey what it is because of your exact nature with sensory and flavour hunting and you relate it all in terms of storytelling. And if I think that there's one thing we can all agree on tonight, other than in Leith, we should be able to say Slan Javar as loud as Glaswegians. <laughs> it's that storytelling and bringing people together um, is everything in whiskey. And here's to you, Richard. Thank, Thank you. you. Slange. Thank you. Slange Javar. Okay, let's uh, just carry on now. Um, after these uh, two, three drams, we've just got about three more to go. And first of all, we want to uh, leave uh, uh, Bonnie Glasgow or Edinburgh and go over to the island of Jura. Jura. Now, it is a fabulous place. Uh, uh, White Mackay bought it way back in uh, uh, 19, uh, oh, yeah, 1993, actually, all that time ago. And uh, it's been part of our, our portfolio for many years. Um, let, let's just go and show you the island. Let's, okay, Pauline. So this is the first thing that you see when you arrive on Isla. And many people say uh, when they arrive at the sort of uh, terminal of the, the, the airplanes and everything, and they look over and they say, oh, gee, what, what are these islands? Uh, what are these mountains? So no, no, that's nothing part of it. This, this is, in fact, part of the next island called Jura. And they're known as the Paps of Jura. The Paps of Jura. The three breasts. Now, not many three-breasted women. Uh, well, Anne Boleyn, she had some fingers on one hand. And, of course, she was executed in the 19th of May, 1536. But anyway, uh, we've got the Mount of Gold, Mount of Sound, and Sacred Mountain. But what it does do is it acts as a barrier. So when all the wind and rain comes in from the sea and what have you, it kind of encloses the distillery around about it. But to get over, you've got to go over to Isla. And then, of course, you cross over and it only takes you, as I say, four and a half minutes. But what you must do when you're there and you stand on the Isla Pier uh, at Port Charlotte and all these places is look at this sound of Jura. You can see the sort of division of the uh, water coming down, swirls and everything. But what you must do is clap your hands. You just clap your hands and you do that. And I remember doing this many years ago with a French party. And eventually they came up and said, Richard, you're becoming very embarrassing, clapping your hands. What do you think you're doing? I said, I'm waiting. I said, what are you waiting for? We're waiting for the seals. I said, what seals? 
said, just wait. And sure as fate, if you do that, the vibration eventually goes up and they come up like footballs, all of them around this bay here. Pauline's looking at me. She's I never heard that one before. <laughs> I said, but it's true. It's true. That's what will bring the vibrations of the seal. But what I will tell you is you must be very careful. You cannot just take the ferry and go straight over. It has to go up, down, and then in. It, it's a very, very... I mean, the currents are very strong. Some people say, I'm going for a drink over to Isla. They row the boat, and then the next minute they're out in the Atlantic. You've got to be very, very careful. So you cross over, and you get to the other side, and then you've got to go along the long road. Here we have the long road, lovely photograph of the long road, built by Thomas Telford, of course, the Edinburgh Telford, very famous Thomas Telford. He built it in 1809. He finished it in 1812. And the whole road cost £5,400. Not very much money, but he actually started to look at and open up. So when I went, uh, just shortly after we purchased the story, about uh, 1994, 1995, I took the car down and I said, I'm going to go there and see our stocks in the, in the distillery. Going along the road, just minding my own business, looking to see the hillside, and thought to myself, Jura, what does it mean? It means red deer. Jura means red deer. It also means Jew and Ra, two brothers. It also means yew tree. But the most important one is, of course, red deer, because there are around about 6,000 red deer on the island. That number has uh, gone down to about 4,200 approximately. So when you arrive on Jura, don't just look at the road. You look up here. What's happening up here on the, on the horizon? And you'll see the stags up there. You look up in the, the skyline. You'll see white-tailed eagles, sea eagles. You'll see stone chat, wind chats, all these wonderful birds. And then as you go further along, you'll see the standing stones. There are eight standing stone sites on Jura. And the one of the famous ones, just shortly around the corner here, called Colin Stack. And it's about 15 feet tall. It's a, a beautiful one. And what you must do is you go over and walk over to it. I remember walking with my paint and shoes on and what have you, and my matching handkerchiefs and what have you, and got soaked and went through all the bogs like an idiot. And then I went up to it. But you need to put your ear onto the stone. And there's something magical about it. It's a sort of vibration. Even people have said on the island, when you take your dogs, some of them will freeze and just move away because they don't like it. Why were they put there? Nobody really knows. But they generally will actually mount over. If you go over to one of them, Stack, and look over at Isla, you'll see them joining up there. But the summer solstice and all that, that's all part of the mystery of it. So that's sort of a, a mysterial part of Jura. Then, of course, you carry on, okay, Pauline, and then you arrive at the distillery itself, established at 1810, 1810. But really the records from 1820, 1830 really come into their own. So when you look at this, like I look at it still to this very day, and I say to myself, what the heck is going on here? Uh, what's wrong, Richard? It's just a bloody building, you know? And I remember saying to Delmi Evans all those years ago, Delmi, why don't you uh, show us the stills that we can see from the small Isle Bay? Uh, Richard, when people 
you know, came to the distilleries in the 50s, the 60s, it was still a mystery. And it really was a mystery. I remember when we had Tom and Tull Distillery, Sandy Robertson up there, and we had people coming all the way from Sweden, and they knocked on the distillery door, and we are for Sweden. I said, we, what do you want? He said, we want to see around your distillery. And the second word was off. So they had to uh, uh, off. So that, I said, you know, Sandy, you can't do that because there's now 2.3 million people now starting again, thank goodness, after COVID, visiting the distilleries. But what we want to see is show us the distillery, show us the shape. But these hidden gems were, of course, kept away uh, during these early years. So this is him. This is, uh, this is Delmi. Well, no, it's not Delmi Evans. This is Delmi Evans here. And he's actually just taking a little miniature because once again, he said, you'll have to bring some revenue into the distillery because many of the people, there are approximately 230 residents on the distillery, only 230. And people are saying, how do you get employed here? Well, the distillery at that time had around about 25 people. 25 people. Now it's down to about 11. Even smaller now, because you don't need big production. But Delmi Evans said, we're going to have to get this distillery going. 1956, 1957, he said, okay, I've started Tully Barden Distillery. Tully Barden, the stills are a little bit similar to the ones that you see down on Jura, like, like this. And he said, well... Okay, uh, let's start up the distillery. So eventually got the landowners. These are the landowners. Uh, Smith, of course, uh, Delmi Evans and uh, Riley Smith, of course, of Whiskey Magazine fame. That was his great-grand-uncle there. And he then is holding the miniature because on the 24th of April, 1963, the distillery opened. And I remember when it opened. Let's, let's go to the next one, Pauline. Yeah, there we are. When the distillery opened... Eventually, when White Mackay moved in, they said, well, let's, uh, let's start a visitor center. A what? A visitor center. Come on, we need to get visitors onto the island. What, where are they going to go? And they said, well, how much is it going to cost us? They said, it's going to cost about, at that time, 45,000 pounds. What? 40? No, Richard, you, don't be silly. That's a, that's a lot of money. And we built it. And within it, eventually, about a year and a half, it paid for itself. Because the, the sailors came in, the people came in. Where else is to go from the arriving at Small Isle Bay? You just go to, well, for a start, uh, it takes you eight miles, by the way, along that road to come to the distillery, to Craig House. There is only one um, shop. There's only one distillery. There's only one uh, minister. And, you know, most of the people live on the island. So remember... This is a distiller, different distillery manager. You need to have a distillery manager because when we opened it in 1963, they said, what are we going to do? We're going to bring them over to the mainland to raise the numbers. All right, okay. Well, they only lasted two, two years at the very most. You know, I mean, some of them arrived and they said, uh, Mickey Heads, for instance, he arrived from Isla. He said, where are you going, Mickey? <laughs> Sunday, I'm, I'm going to get my Sunday papers. No, no. This is Jura. They arrive on a Monday, not on a Sunday. <laughs> you know? And so, so you sort of get into that sort of mode. And, and it is true when you arrive at Feeland, where the, where the terminal is, you just get a little signal, but after that signal, there's none. 
I, got, I came, remember, on the 8th of December, never forget it. And we had all the, the blenders coming over from Shivers, Pernarica, Diageo, what have you, and coming in. And I phoned them up and said, listen, I'm on the island, don't come. And I said, well, we're actually stuck up here at Glasgow Airport. They said the flight's, uh, you know, it's, it's been cancelled completely. He said it's going to be cancelled for about two or three days. And there was a waterfall coming down. And I said, it's not a waterfall. It's going up in the air now. It was so violent. There was no electricity as well. But it was all part of island life. And that's when people say, my home is your home. And the people of Jura get really fed up because they say, oh, please, come April, May, when we can get back out and, you know, get some fresh air. Because the community is very much looking at each other, but at times it becomes very, very hard. So... 230 people, the island is 26 miles long to one to eight miles wide. Parts of Jura dominate it, but we have these tall stills. I, I can't remember, Pauline, we got them. Yeah, there they are, beautiful stills. Now, I, they might be to you stills, but to me, they're beautiful. Because when I go to a distillery, any distillery, I tend to look down like this here to see the different shapes. These are beautiful lamp stills, 24 feet, four and three quarter inches tall. And it fights to get up the top and then it goes over. So therefore you get a sort of fragrant space-side style, but you get that individuality coming from Jura. But it likes maturation, yes, in American white oak. It likes that American white oak to give us that, that softness, that cedar, that town of, you know, sort of town of Boon style of, you know, um, just that sort of fruit, tropical fruit notes that are very much akin to that distillery. It's not until they're about 21, 22, 23 that we, years old, that they take on the heavier notes coming from the sherry. Now, I wanted to show you this next slide, Pauline, that's fine. And, and this, this I'm, I mean, I'm just looking at this and it's a bit of a laugh for me. No, it's not actually, it's very serious because some of you might remember these expressions. We've got the Jura 10 years old and then we have the, Jura superstition, and then we had one called prophecy, and then we had 21. Well, um, you know, I've gone through in the time with White Mackay, the 52 years or what have you with White Mackay, I've gone through 11 takeovers, and I'm now on my 19th different boss. But when Emperor arrived and they said to me, Richard, what's this? Uh, that's the Ankh Cross, Dr. Tan. The what? The, the Ankh Cross. It's a sign of good luck. He said, what? But why is it called superstition? Because it's unlucky to cut peat in April as opposed to May. And therefore, when you have the ant cross, if you put your hand on it and shake somebody's hand, you'll give them good luck. What? Yes, yeah, this has already happened. We had a man down in London who, who was a great better. I shook his hand and I said, this will give you uh, some luck on the horses or what have you. So he put some money on the lottery and he won 4.2 million pounds. Absolutely true. And did I get any money? No, I'm afraid I didn't. So, but it's unlucky to cut peat. And that's why I said, let's, let's bring a little bit of peaty level, but let's use the Ankh cross, Dut Ankh Hamon. That was his middle name. And that's why Cleopatra and all that held the Ankh cross Egyptian. So it was a bit of a story. The prophecy, we used a one eye. Just an, and as soon as he saw that, he said, oh, that's, that's an evil eye. He said, why do you call that? He said, because the last Campbell 
in uh, Jura was meant to, uh, it was pro prophesized that he would leave in uh, the island. He wouldn't come back again. He would take all his belongings, but he had one eye. And it came effect in 1938. He had lost his eye during the First World War. And uh, he had a white horse, took all his belongings, and never came back. Again, it was a story, but to them, these things have got to be very careful. I mean, anything I say, and I do forgive me some of the things I have said, but it, it is not good karma. So you've got to be very careful. What it may work in Scotland may not work abroad. So be very careful on that front. So when we're looking at all these notes, sea spray, sun, you know, sultanas, apples, etc. Let's look at this particular one. This is called the Jura Winter. As we're now in winter, it's a sort of a good time to sample it. And this is, of course, is matured in American white oak. And it is then finished in what we call Vasama uh, <coughs> sherry butts uh, from Jaretha La Frontera. Now, how many of you have been to Jaretha La, La Frontera? Anybody? One or two of you? Please, those guys that have been will tell you it's a magnificent place. If you've got the time, go. And if you don't like sherry, I'll be so disappointed. You start with the Fino, work up to the Montelado Oroso, and then the PX and the Palo Cartados and everything else. It's just wonderful. Just going into the bodegas, smelling the ambience of the place, etc., etc. So what we're going to see here is you're going to see the softness of the American white oak, but again, just a little bit lighter, not as heavy as Ferricairn, just going to see the softness. Let's do a big slangy bar and really taste this, okay? One, two, three, slangy bar. Here we go. And let it go over. Quite spicy, rich, but it's got that lovely tang, hint of saltiness. There is actually just a minimum amount of phenolics. It's not much, it's just a little bit coming through. Just as a sort of winter, we call it a winter warmer. But again, what we've done with the PX, we've made sure, not the PX, the Oloroso Sherry that we've used from the cast doesn't dominate. It just gives it that, that velvety touch towards the end. But again, it's quite complex. And that's what really sets Jura, that little point of difference uh, from uh, you know, other areas. A great place for going, as you know, um, George Orwell went there, stayed up there, many stories involved with it. Christine Keeler, I know some of you will never remember this, June 1963, Christine Keeler, Mandy Rice Davison, after the perfumer scandal, came up there, but nobody talks about it. Even when people arrive there, you know, they like to be on their own, and people that live there like to leave people alone. So it's a beautiful place, but gee, it has so many, many warm memories. Even, even uh, my, my twin brother sadly passed away uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, he, I remember taking him, uh, he was my twin brother, and he could be annoying, no question about it. And he arrived and he said, um, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm gonna be in the warehouse. 
I'm not going to be here. Uh, I said, well, what are you going to do, Russ? He said, I'm going to maybe have a look around the island. Well, he said, I'll see you back in the pub. You know, that's the, the hotel. So he disappeared. He, five o'clock came. I went to the bar. Where's your brother? Oh, he said, he'll, he'll be here shortly. Five o'clock came. Six o'clock came. Seven o'clock. I said, where's your brother? I said, I don't know, but I'm getting really angry. Where is he? Eight o'clock came. And people were really starting to say, well, we'll get the search parties out. And about half past eight, quarter to nine, my brother, I could just see him walking into the village. And he said, I said, Russ, where, where the heck have you been? Oh, don't worry, Dick boy. I've, uh, I climbed one of the paps of Jura, a mountain of gold. And then I thought, I climbed the other one. And I thought, well, that's two in the bag. I might as well climb the third one. Well, I could have killed him. But nevertheless, just in the space of five minutes, he was buying everybody drinks. He was, you know, the friend of the family of Jura, but he was just part of the island. And he was welcomed, and he was a big hero of the day. So it's really a very warm, friendly place. Look out for the deer, but more importantly, look out for the whiskey. Okay, I'm not sure what we've got next. What's that? Yeah, we're on to Dalmore. Let's go to the next one, Pauline. Right up there. There's Dalmore uh, up there. Um, how many of you been to Dalmore? Oh, a number of you. Yeah, at the present moment, slightly closed down because we're starting renovations of increasing production and everything. Dalmore established 1839. But uh, let's just go and see the place. This is it. I love this photograph. This is one I take all around the different parts of the world. And the first thing I see is the mountain of gold. Well, it is a mountain. It's Ben Wivis. The Mountain of Terror, actually, as it's known. And then we've got the distillery on the banks of the Cromartie Firth. You've got all the lovely meadowlands and uh, barley around the area. And Dalmore means big meadowland. And uh, it's been part of my life since uh, White Mackay bought it in 1960. But this actually tells you the influence of the sea coming into the warehouse. Warehouse 2, Warehouse 4, damp, big uh, sandstone buildings very traditional, three high, and therefore you're going to get the maritime climate, you're also going to get the, the muscle structure from the terroir. I mean, it's not terroir, but it gives you an idea of looking and something that will be reflected uh, in the whiskey itself. So this is the man, Alexander Matheson. Alexander Matheson, uh, he's the man that, uh, well, Jardine Matheson, he, his family was over in Hong Kong, uh, during what we call the Opium War. And he said, uh, well, Opium War, tea or what have you, well, I'm more interested in whiskey. So, of course, he established uh, Jardine Matheson in Hong Kong, 1st of July, 1832, came back, and he said, uh, right, I'm going to build the old mill at the distillery. And he set to work, he put it together, but he was also looking for a tenant so uh, the tenant came along, a young Andrew Mackenzie. He's a, quite an old man here, as you can see. He arrived with his brother Charles in 1867, October. And on the 26th of January, 1868, he started distilling whiskey for the very first time. In 1874, he doubled the capacity of his distillery. But it wasn't the small stills. And it wasn't thin stills, it was big bulbous stills. It wasn't these plain stills, they were big fat bulbous uh, stills that will give us complexity. Now during these early years, you must remember, look at the shape of them. This tells you this has got muscle, real muscle, difference here. And of course what they did was they put their new spirit. 
their self-whiskey out into the market. Self-whiskey. This is what was sold to many people because in the 1850s, 1860s, 1880s, what have you, there was just no rules or regulations. So they started selling the whiskey and the, they took it up and it made quite a bit of money. And then Andrew McKenzie said, hold on a minute, this is crazy. It's time to lay down whiskey. What are you talking about, Andrew? Well, I'm talking about 12, 15, 20, 30, maybe 40 years old. Are you off your heads? What, what, what are you talking about? He said, this is what we must do. We must try and build these stocks up. And a lot of people, there are where one or two of people said, this is not right. But he was a far-sighted gentleman who said, we must lay down stocks. And that's why age profile, only Dalmore and a few others, and I'm talking about a few others, everybody thinks, oh, have you got a 60-year-old, a 70-year-old? No, these are rare, rare gems. And that's why high prices are being paid. So he did the distillate, he put it into American White Oak, and then he got involved with Gonzalez Bias. Gonzalez Bias, of course, that produces our Methuselah whiskey, our Methuselah sherry. Gonzalez Bias established in 1835 in Jerez de la Frontera. But we wanted to make, okay, Pauline, just, uh, what's I can't remember the next one. We wanted to create something that would give us the DNA. So when you look at Dalmore, like all the whiskies, they have a DNA. But the one that we think really captures it, the essence of it, is one called chocolate orange. Chocolate orange is something that you should pick up from some of these whiskies. So it will be seen in the next one, which is the Dalmore 15 years old. Now we have a 12 years old, yes, 12 years old, we have non-age or what have you. But this is a baby that I thought I'd show you tonight because it expresses what I'm looking for. What I mean is that it's got Methuselah sherry. And where's Methuselah? This is the Methuselah here. And this is the sherry. Now, this is Methuselah sherry. And it is a minimum of 30 years old. Minimum of 30 years old. How do you know, Richard, it's 30 years old? Because if the Consuegla Regulador do not stamp it at the back, you will not be allowed to put 30 years old on the label. So that is the very, very strict control. So Gonzalez Bias take their sherry, which is 75% Palomino Fino, Palomino Fino, 75 and 25% Pedro Jimenez. And they mature for about 15 years, and then they put it back into the Gran Bodegas, and they give us this very rich style. It comes in at about 127 grams of sugar per liter. And again, what we do is we have these sherry butts and they put five liters, not like the PX, 10 liters, five liters. They come into uh, Invergord and Dalmore. We empty it out and then we fill it. But it will take about two years, two months for what we're looking for. So to give us the 15 years old, we don't just put it into Methuselah, 30 years old. We put it also into Apostoles, 30 years old, and one called Amoroso, 15 years old. And therefore, elegance elegance personified the, the sheer silkiness is what we're actually looking for so I want you to go to your second whiskey and if you look around and just say hello and then how are you and then quite well thank you very much you should be able to pick up that chocolate orange that orange note and it's just a combination of making sure that we don't dominate it 
with too much sherry. I cannot stand if it becomes too heavy with sherry when we nose it in November, we will put it back into American white oak to balance it out. What we are looking for that marmalade note, the chocolate orange, so important. And when we're talking about Leith, this is one of my favorite parts of Edinburgh because it's related to, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, Queen of Scots, married the Dauphin of France, 24th of April, 1558. The Dauphin of France died 1561. You are no longer Queen of France. Oh, well, what are you going to do? I'm going to go back to Scotland. Okay, back to Scotland. Goodbye. So Mary, Mary, Queen Mary, Mary Queen of Scots said, I'm going to come back. So she set off from Cali on Friday, the 19th of, uh, 19th of August, uh, 1561. Ninth check of the date, so 19th of August, 1561. And during the, the, the voyage, oh, oh, she started to be sick. She was sick and said, what's, what's wrong with the queen? She's seasick. She's got to get something to settle her stomach. So they gave her an orange cordial. And she drank it. And sure as fate, within about half an hour, she was feeling much better. From that, we get Mary Malad. Marmalade. That's how you get the name. Oh, and you're all looking at me saying, what a load of rubbish, you know? <laughs> no, but it's, I, a lot of people say, Mary Malad, Mary Malad, Marmalade, that's how you get the name. When you say that to people in America, they have no clue. But, oh, sorry, I know you're all the way from America, but they, you, don't, you don't have that. You call it jellies over there. So you've got to be very careful. But, you know, okay, it might not be totally right, but one you'll remember is when they make a cocktail with, uh, of course, uh, um, tomato juice and what have you, what did you get? A Bloody Mary. Because when she was executed on the 8th of February, 1567, it took three chops to get her head off and blood everywhere. And that's why the cocktail is named after. So there's some other stories you can remember. So here we have, the, so let, let's just look at that. This is what I do, I keep picking it up. No, that's not it, that's it there. So, so what I want you to do is to really look at that Look at that marmalade note. You'll see that there, that orange, bitter chocolate note. Little hint of balsamic. Very soft, very elegant. Okay, a big slanjiva. One, two, three. Slanjiva! And let it go down. Very rich. This is for best for after after really after after dinner. Just keep it there. Keep it there. Keep it there. Just got lots of taste. I'm just going back again. Okay. All right. Yep. So this is uh, just, to, just to say once again, 75% Palomino Fino, 25% PX. There's the, the beautiful white grapes. Put them onto uh, the, the, there's the old Esparto mats. But now they've got these tunnels here. Some bakes it. They turn them over. And as I say, two to three weeks, so the Soleil system, that gives it rid of all the moisture content. These are the famous uh, places, Areto de la Frontera, the bodegas. When I go into these bodegas, it reminds me when I went into the, 
You know, the, the, the warehouse where my father, you stop, don't walk in straight away. It doesn't matter if it's a warehouse uh, in a bodega in Spain or a quinta in Portugal or a warehouse in Scotland. Don't walk in, stop at the door, let the doors open and shut your eyes and smell. Is it a dry warehouse? Is it a damp warehouse? And then just get the ambience of the place because then you think of all the cars lying around there and how they're going to mature. The ones at the bottom nearest the ground, are they going to mature? The ones at the top, are they going to evaporate more? So that's why we take a, a whole assemblage from these areas. But Methuselah means very old, and as I say, 30 years old, to give us the style that we're looking for. This, of course, is exclusive totally to Dalmore. That's what we've been dealing with that company for over 100 years. We've got documentation going back to 1915, and it goes back even further, but it is a true partnership with this great, great company. They produce fabulous, fabulous sherries, and, but they also give us, helping to give us something very, very special. Okay, so we've got one more whiskey, I think, to, to sample, and that's it. I was talking to this lovely lady here. Um, I said, have you been up to the Portrait Museum in Edinburgh? Uh, because if you have, this one painting will shine out. It's called The Fury of the Stag. You walk into the left-hand side of the um, museum, of course. You see the Titians, you'll see the Rayburns. You come round the corner and suddenly, wow, what is this? This is The Fury of the Stag, painted by Benjamin West in 1786. The largest painting in Europe, 12 feet by 17 feet long. So what's that got to do with blinking down more? Well... After the Battle of Sheriff Moor, 13th of November, 1715, the Mackenzie family were not there. No, they weren't there. The Battle of Culloden, Wednesday, the 16th of April, 1746, yeah, we were there. And so this is actually telling us we were there. But this, who is this here? This is King Alexander III of Scotland. And he was out hunting after he got rid of the, uh, the Vikings on the 2nd of October, 1263. And he said, I'm going to go out and stag hunt and he hunted a royal stag when Benjamin West came from America he hadn't a clue what a royal stag was so he took 19 points on his uh, stag's head so somebody gave him a slap and he managed to get six points either side so this is Benjamin West uh, he takes the spear and he, he gets hold of the stag kills the stag saves the king because he saves the king, he's given lands of Kintail. So that's why you got to Dunan Castle. That was ancestral home of both the Mackenzies and the Mathesons. But more importantly, he said, if your name is Mackenzie, uh, and this was, of course, meant to be Colin Fitzgerald, but this is when Benjamin West painted his own head on it. He was the first artist to put expressions on horses, and that's why he was known as the Raphael of America. So he said, I'll give you any Mackenzie of your family, you can use the stag. So when Andrew Mackenzie arrives in 1868, he wants to remember that and puts a stag on the label. It was pathetic. He said, come on, this is just absolutely useless. And until eventually we then moved in and really gave it the, the, 
respect it should be. So when you go into a gantry and see a bottle of Dalmore, you should see it absolutely blazoned away at the top. But let me tell you, it took years and years to get the right application on the bottle. Many people used to come through the duty-free, get their knives, rip off the stag and put it in their pockets. And quite often you had broken stags all over the place. So now it's a little bit more difficult but it tells a story. And that's why we're only going to give you a small sample, the last one, okay? And to remember that, it's called uh, the Dalmore King Alexander 1263. There we go. And it comes, it's different because it comes from not just one expression, but six. It is matured independently, separated in Port Madeira Marsala. Port Madeira Marsala Cabernet Sauvignon, small batch bourbon, and Methuselah sherry. And this is non-age. And people get, oh, oh Richard, it's non-age. No, oh, yep, yep, yep. I mean, God <laughs> almighty. It, it's, it is non-age, but can I just tell you, when we mature it, I'll tell you right now, the port wine will take you at least five years to have the seasoning. So you're talking about further up, many, many years before I'll finally release it. Cabernet Sauvignon from Chateau Haute Marbouzi in Bordeaux, between Claude Sternel and Chateau Montrose. Of course, it takes about 18 months. Marsala, normally three years, very difficult to get these casts over in the port pipes. That also will take five, six, seven years before we get the style that we're looking for. Sherry, of course, two and a half years. So that assemblage, once, we, once they're finished, what I do is take the, the sections from each one and we put the assemblage together and create it. It's at 40%. Why 40%? Because it really brings all the essences together. Now, I'm so sorry, it's not quite big enough for you all. This is one that I sample on many, many occasions. Um, uh, unfortunately, because of the demand, it's on short supply all around the world at the present moment. So I think really take a, a good, good Slangiva. But before you do it, just go up and say hello to it and then go back to it. How are you? Just sample it slowly because, in fact, there's vanilla, there's spice, there's the sort of Victorian plums coming there from the beautiful port wine. You're going to get a hint of the chocolate orange, yes, from the Methuselah. You're going to get a little bit of floral notes coming from the Madeira Masala. And it's just like opening a box of chocolates. It just keeps going on and on and on. And being at 40%, fantastic. If you should buy a bottle, even the 15-year-old Dalmore, what have you, if you really want to entertain your friends, give them a creme brulee. Say, have a creme brulee. They finish the creme brulee. Then bring in the coffee, black Nicaragua or, or, or even Java coffee. Tell them two mouthfuls of this wonderful coffee. You, you don't need milk. You don't need sugar. This is coffee. A lot of people say coffee's coffee. Another smack. No, no, it's, it's beautiful. Just keep it there, hold it there, hold it there, and then let it go down. Two sips of that. Then tell them to take the Dalmore King Alexander, the 15, put it in the mouth, top of the tongue, underneath, back in the middle, let it go down. Then give them a chocolate, a bit of chocolate, 72% cocoa fat. Switch the lights off. As soon as you switch the lights off, what's going on here? Just take, take the chocolate, let it melt, and it will combine. It combine with the whiskey, the creme brulee, and you'll turn an ordinary dinner into a banquet. This is when you've got to really look at it in that way. So 
a real big slangy bar for this last whiskey and then hold it long in the mouth. Okay, one, two, three, slangy bar. Again, really big, powerful notes to begin with. Then you'll see all these lovely essence, cranberry fruits, sultanas. Yes, you've got that licorice, hints of balsamic coming through. Yeah, it really, it just, just epitomizes something that must be sipped, savored, but you must take your time. Take your time, but this is something that only age can bring. Dalmore, the age is what it's so important is. Yes, this goes up to many, many, many years before we can attain the quality we're looking for. But of course, okay, Pauline, the others we got 50, you know, when I celebrated 50 years with White Mackay, we brought this out, only 50 bottles. You're talking about 50,000 pounds, you know, a, a bottle. But there's other gems. I mean, the one that stands out to my mind, okay, Pauline, is this one here, Trinitas, the 64 years old. 64 years old, only three bottles, produced in 2010. This is um, 1926, 1939, 19, uh, sorry, 1867, 1868, 1926, and 1930. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, let me just, 1868, 1926, 19, yeah, yeah, I think so. It is these old casts that we put together, only three bottles. We put them together, we've called it Trinitas, beautiful uh, silver, lovely packaging, put it into Harrods, and we demanded £100,000 for one bottle. The first, two, first, one, first bottle sold to a, a, a particular guy, Mahesh Patel, over in America. He still got it. Second one was from uh, Sikinder Singh Whiskey Exchange. He still got it. And the third bottle, by this time, we said, oh, it's selling pretty well. We'll put another 20,000. Went to an anonymous buyer in New York. I can tell you right now, all three bottles are still not opened. Okay, not open. Yes, you're quite right. You should be seeing that. Oh, because it's very sad. Because instead of 120,000, today, 1.6 to 1.7 million pounds. This is what is demanded for these type of it. This is pure luxury. People say to me, oh, come on, Richard. This is ridiculous. This is so expensive. They said, but once this bottle is finished, you won't see it again because it has something from the 19th century. It goes back to Andrew McKenzie. So, so it's something that is something that age can only bring. And, uh, you know, it's uh, a sensation once you actually, um, <laughs> once, uh, <laughs> uh, once, once you've sampled this, you, you know that you're in absolute pure heaven. But again, it's very important to take the old with the new. 
Remember, when you get casks of this age, 40 years old, 45, 60, 62, if that whiskey goes below 40%, you can no, no longer call it that. It has to be not less than 40%. So these whiskeys that we're sampling, you have to be very, very careful. But they remind me of my grandfather, grandmother, you cannot push them around. These are very old, delicate whiskies. So when you say, uh, what are you gonna do with it? We're gonna transfer it. It's always a risky business because sometimes if it's too heavy or too light, the whiskey will go in another direction. And that's why you've got to do it very, very slowly. But to get the, res the results you're looking for will take probably three or four times more the time to get at the essence you're, you're, you're hoping for. So they're delicate. To my mind, they're well worth it. But as you've sighed over there, that's not what it's about. If you get whiskey, as in China, in particular China, what they do is buy a bottle, 62, 64, 50, and they put it in front of their table. Look what's happening here. Look what's happening here. This is great. And they won't even open the bottle. They'll just take it out. And everybody say, oh, isn't that magnificent? But if you love somebody, if you want to revere somebody, open it and share it with the people you love. Now, these are expensive, but this is like Jillian here who's, who's, who's got high maintenance. She's got a lovely ring there with, <laughs> you know, with, with and, and this is something that all ladies love. Do you know what this is? This is graphite. This is 3.5 million years old. And it's in the ground. It's been in the ground for all that length of time. And what happens? Volcanic eruption brings it to the top. And what do we get? We get something very special. And this is what we get here. Take a good, good look at this. Do you know what this is? This is the Kuri Nur diamond. <laughs> This is the Kurinur diamond given to Queen Victoria on the 3rd of July, 1850. In 1850, when she looked at it with Prince Albert, she said, this is not very well cut. We're going to have to recut it. So in 1852, it was recut in front of Prince Albert and the Duke of Wellington's into 64 six different facets, but still contained 105.6 carats. And of course, it was put on the Queen Mother's crown in 1938. But when I saw King Charles just a couple of weeks ago, he said, um, <laughs> he said, he said, uh, Richard, I, I'm probably coming up to Scotland again. Uh, he said, oh, is that right? He said, uh, well, okay. So if you actually go along to the Tower of London and have a good look and look at the Queen Mother's crown, you'll find the Kurinur diamond is missing. Because when I told him I was coming up to Leith to the Mall Society, <laughs> he, said, he said, why don't you borrow it? So, so here it is here. I'm going to just say it actually... The facets of this beautiful, brilliant cut reflect the beautiful people that are here tonight. Because what do we do? We share one thing, one great love of Scotch whiskey. Not just 
blended whiskies, but particularly malt whisky, which gives the blended whiskies all the backbone they deserve. So your figures, as I said, 6.2 million pounds, 6.3 million pounds, billion pounds, should I say, coming to the Exchequer is thanks to people like yourself. But remember, love makes the world go round, rubbish. Whiskey makes go round, but <laughs> twice as fast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Distillery visits and exclusive presentations from some of the biggest names in the whisky world are just one of the perks of being a member of the SMWS. The whisky's pretty special too, so if you haven't signed up yet, what are you waiting for? You can find out everything you need to know about the world's leading whisky club at smws.com. That's it for this episode of Whisky Talk. Until the next time, cheers. Cheers.